Well, you saw the message on the, the PowerPoint, the title, called Faith in Jesus, The Bridge to Righteousness. Two weeks ago, I preached a message called For That Reason. In that message, it really talked about a scripture that contains the really, really good, almost too good to be true news. It's found in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've also gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Suddenly that's become two of my favorite scriptures. I don't know, I love those scriptures. When I began to look at those scriptures again this week, I, I began to notice in those two verses right there, God is mentioned one time, Jesus is mentioned one time, justification is mentioned one time, peace is mentioned once, and even grace mentioned one time. But I did note that the word faith was mentioned twice. So there is something that God is trying to tell us, and that's why the name of the message is faith in Jesus. Not just faith in faith, not just faith in anything, but it's faith in Jesus. So I began to say, okay, Lord, what are you trying to say here? He says we have to have faith for righteousness, of course, as you can see in the Word. But when I think about righteousness, I think about something that's even beyond just salvation. I don't think there's anything greater than being in a relationship with the Lord Jesus. But when He died and He gave us righteousness, the root word of righteousness is the word right, R-I-G-H-T. And it's so healthy for us to always see everywhere we go that Jesus is right and because He's right and lives in me, that makes me right. I mean, it's pretty simple to understand, isn't it? And righteousness encompasses more than just my salvation. It encompasses that I walk in health, it encompasses that I walk in prosperity. It, it just encompasses so much more. You say, where's that in the Bible? 3 John verse 2, it's not what I'm going to preach on today, but 3 John verse 2 says, Beloved, I wish above all things that you would prosper and be in health. And then watch what he says right after that. He says, even as your soul prospers. So he, he's saying, listen, the fact that you're going to prosper in your body and the fact that you're going to prosper financially, the fact you're going to prosper in every area of your life, in your ministry, your, your relationships, whatever it may be, it's going to be linked to how you prosper in your soul. You're going to prosper in direct proportion to how your, your soul is doing. That's why we teach these messages about grace. Right, we sound like broken records, but that's just the way it is. Grace and God's love and, God's, and the righteousness of God. The truth of the matter is we keep forgetting these things. And so we do need to keep going over them uh, over and over again. But it didn't say in Romans chapter 5 verse 1 what was the reason. I know we covered this before, but the reason is found in the Scripture just before that. I got to thinking about this. If I was to go to online and check my bank account, and suddenly it had $50,000 more in it than <laughs> what it was supposed to, it would be easy for me to find the result. The result is it grew $50,000 because of a $50,000 deposit. That makes sense, doesn't it? But wouldn't you want to know the reason? <laughs> Some of you probably not. Huh? <laughs> nope, just leave it there. <laughs> you know what? I'd have to call the bank and say, what's the reason? What is the reason I have this extra money in my account? So when we look at the, the scripture before Romans chapter 5 verse 1 in Romans chapter 4 verse 25, and what we're talking about is we're talking about a cause and effect. You ever heard the cause and effect? You have a cause and effect. In Romans chapter 4, verse 25, the Bible says, He, we're talking about Jesus now, was delivered over to death for our sins. I want you to take that scripture and just stick it right here for just a second. Remember it, okay? He was delivered over to death for our sins. And then if we come over here to Romans chapter 5, verse 1, the very next scripture, it says that I can be made righteous. I can be declared righteous. So as I began to look at those two scriptures again this week, I thought, I like what that one says, and I definitely like what this one says. I like what he did for me. I like what I can have. But I noticed there was an expanse. There was a space in between these two scriptures. And that's where I began to meditate earlier this week, and I thought, Lord, it doesn't mean just because you died it made everyone righteous. I think you would agree with that. So there has to be a bridge to bridge those two scriptures together. And that bridge is faith in Jesus. He said in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified, that means declared righteous, by faith. And it talks about it's faith in Jesus. And so, it is faith in Jesus. He is the bridge to righteousness. 
Let me ask you a question. Has everyone's sins been paid for? I want you to think about that for a second. <laughs> and as you're thinking about it, has everyone's sins been paid for? I was reminded, I, first of all, I can fall asleep very easy. When it's time to go night-night, my average is about 30 to 40 seconds and I'm out for the night. I know that makes some of you crazy, doesn't it? <laughs> I've been that way all my life. If I stay awake for a minute, that's a long time. And there'll be about once a year, I'll be awake for about 10 minutes. And I think, man, it took an eternity to fall asleep last night. But it's 30 to 40 seconds. And shortly into our marriage, we slipped into bed one night and I asked my wife a question. And before she could answer the question, you guessed it, I was asleep. I remember the next morning she said, honey, can I talk to you? I said, absolutely. She said, uh, if you want to talk when we go to bed, let's talk. I said, yes, let's do it. She said, if you don't want to talk when we go to bed, let's not talk. About that time I'm thinking, where are you going with this thing? But she said, but please don't ask me a question and then fall asleep before I can even answer it. That just bugs me. I'm like, okay. So when I was thinking about that, when I'm saying, has everyone's sin been paid for? Technically, the answer is yes. Everyone's sin has been paid for. Now, I said that story because if you want to take your little church nap right now, your three-minute cat nap, whatever in church, I don't mind. Go ahead and take it. But just wait till I give you, explain this. Otherwise, what you're going to do is you're going to walk out of here today and you're going to say, Pastor Mark's a universalist. <laughs> I'm not a universalist. A universalist believes that everybody's going to be saved. Everybody is saved and everybody's going to heaven. Listen, mark it on your record, mark it in your margin of your Bible you want. I am not a universalist. I wish that was the case. I wish everybody could go to heaven. I do. That's why I stand in a pulpit and preach and everywhere I go preach the goodness of God because I want to see as many people get saved as possible. Don't you feel the same way? Amen. I'm trying to take this and not rush this thing, but I'm trying to get the message in too. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15 says this, And that he died for all, that they which live should henceforth no longer live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. I want you to hear the first three words now. And that, or first six words, and that he died for all. Now if you just take that scripture, park it right there for a second, and we go back to Romans chapter 4, verse 25, where it says that he was delivered over to death for our sins. And we bring those two together with a bridge. We can clearly see that he died for our sins, but he died for the whole world's sin at the same time. He died for all. He died for all of our sins. Let me make it more plain. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, the Bible says, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's the first part of the scripture. There's another part we'll get to in just a second. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. In the King James Version, it uses a much larger word. It's called the propitiation. <laughs> oh, man, propitiation. How many times have you used that word this year? <laughs> don't use it very often, do you? In fact, how often do you use the word atoning? We don't unless we're talking about Jesus for the most part. I'll never forget this. When I first got saved, I went and sat in on a Bible class. Uh, it was a Sunday school class. Uh, your aunt was teaching, by the way. And she started doling out scriptures for everybody to read, take a turn reading, you know. And she gave me that scripture. And I just thought, I got a scripture to read. I'm going to read this scripture. And I got to that word. I'm like, I took about two or three runs at it. She had to help me. I've never seen that word before in my life. I'm like, what is that word? Let me tell you what it means. Propitiation means God's wrath has been satisfied. When Jesus hung on the cross, God's wrath was being satisfied right there. Someone had to be punished for our sins. It was either us or Jesus, one of the two. There was no getting off scot-free. The word atoning, when I looked it up, not only does it mean to satisfy God's wrath, but here's an interesting meaning. When you look at things in what we call a thesaurus, a thesaurus will tell you other words, give you other words that have the same meaning, basically. And it's a good way to study the Word of God because it helps you understand it from other perspectives. And when I look this word up, atoning, it literally means to say sorry. It means to apologize. And I thought, why in the world would Jesus have to say sorry? Why would Jesus have to say uh, to apologize? I heard the Lord so clearly say, He did it for you. 
When he was hanging on the cross, he was basically saying, Daddy, I want to, on behalf of every man, every woman, every boy and girl that will ever live, that's ever lived, that's living now, I want to say sorry for them, Daddy. Somebody, because you know what, Daddy, they're not going to say it themselves. You've given them time to say it themselves, and they won't say it, will they? That is the nature of a human being. We don't want to say sorry. Oh, that was another lesson I learned early in my marriage is when to say sorry. <laughs> I try not to do things where I have to say I'm sorry to my wife, but it happens once in a while. And I remember the first couple of times, man, I, I, I put my head in her lap and with tears said, I'm sorry I broke your heart, honey. But Jesus said, Daddy, they're not going to say it, so I'm going to say it on their behalf, Daddy. Jesus did no wrong. In uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, the Bible says, And he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no wrong, who did no wrong, who thought no wrong. Watch this. So that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I think that's good news. So, the second part of that scripture is, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. <laughs> He's the atoning sacrifice for the sins for the whole world. In Romans chapter 3, verse 25, we find the very first time, propitiation is only used three times in the Bible, all in the New Testament. Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation, watch how he became it, through faith in Jesus' blood, through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, we see these words. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that, I love it when they put those two words together, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. I want to ask you a question. It mentioned he died for our sins so that we could die to our sins as well. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe that word sins is a noun or a verb? Remember, a verb has actions. A noun is a person, place, or thing. The word sins there is a noun. And why that's always important for us is to see that Jesus didn't just come and die for us so that we could stop sinning. Because if he did that and he just covered everything we had done up to that point in time, well, what about when we sinned again? He'd have to come and die again, wouldn't he? No, he didn't come and just die to say, stop sinning. He came to die so that he could change our nature, and that's why it's a noun. It's literally talking about the person. He died for the person. Listen, I don't ever advocate sin. Sin is stupid. I don't ever advocate that. But I'm telling you something, if you get caught in it, if you, if you think something you shouldn't have thought, you do something. You know, the Bible says even when we do something that's not of faith, it's considered sin. It's pretty easy to sin. It's easier than you think. If you're just looking at what you do to commit it and stuff like that. Even if you do something that's not of faith. In other words, if you pray for somebody, you really don't believe they're going to be healed, for example. Technically, that's sin. Am I in the Word? I think you guys have read that before, right? So let's be real about this thing. So it's a noun. So he died for the nature of man so that we could have a spiritual DNA change. And then it says at the end of that scripture, by Jesus' wounds you have been healed. Another way to say that, when you have a wound you have blood, right? <laughs> by Jesus' blood you have been saved. Very clear. Back to the question, has everyone's sin been paid for? The answer technically is yes. Is everyone declared righteous? The answer is emphatically no. Righteousness must be received by faith. You are 100% righteous or you're not righteous at all. See, we have a way of measuring things. You're either 100% righteous or you're not righteous at all. That's the beauty of the gift. I mean, how crazy would it be if I decided to give my bride a new car, but I just, all I could afford was the tire. <laughs> so I put a tire in a box and say, honey, you're going to love it. She opens it up and what is this? Well, it's a tire. I couldn't afford the whole thing, so I, I bought you a tire. A month later, I'll get you another tire, and a month later, I'll get you two tires, and then the windshield wipers and the bumper. Wouldn't that be crazy? You don't get this gift, you know, piece by piece, bit by bit, part by parcel. You don't get it that way. You get it, or you don't get it at all. You're 100% righteous. And it's in the spirit, man, that's been sealed, the Bible says, until the day of redemption. He can get out, but nothing can get in. I like that part. It's a one-way street. Nothing can get in. Oh, he can get out, though. 
And he gets out all the time. And that's the way we want to flow in, in the word of God is everywhere we go. We want the spirit of God coming out, leaking out, washing out. Not everyone is righteous. The Apostle Paul was writing to the Philippians in chapter 3, verse 18, and he said this. He said, for as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears. I want to stop a second. The Apostle Paul is telling the Philippians, i got to tell you something that's going to make me cry. He said, but if you remember the first time I told you, it made me cry then too. And the second time I told you, it made me cry that time. And remember when I came through your town on a missionary journey and I told you this, it made me cry that time too. He said, every time I tell you this, it makes me cry. What in the world is he about to tell them? You know, my wife and I were watching a movie on Hallmark the other night. She caught most of it. I caught some of it, but I caught the end of it. And everything on Hallmark has a redemptive ending, you know what I mean? But it did have a sad part in there where this mother died, and she had, she had several young children. One of the little boys was about eight years old, and after everything's all over with, he's sitting on a park bench, and some man comes to sit down alongside him who really wants to take him in as his own son. And that little boy is going through a really hard time. And he looks up the boy, and he's got these crocodile tears, I mean, in his eyes. And to look at his face, I looked at my wife, and I said, wow, <laughs> that little boy's a good actor. Because I thought about this. You know, see, when we see a scene with one little boy, for example, when that little boy is looking out from his perspective, what he sees is probably 20, 25, 30 people. You got all the four, five, six cameras that are going. You got the choreographer out there. You got the producer and the director. You've got all these people out there. And if you blow your line, he says, cut. <laughs> Let's do it again. Now you got to cry again, okay? <laughs> cut. You blew it again. Got to do it again. And so it always amazes me when I look at people from Hollywood to think, I don't know what they think about. What makes them so sad? I mean, do they give them something to make their eyes cry? I don't know what it is. It looks so real. Do they just think about something that really is sad in their life? That's Hollywood for you. When my little boy died, I cried buckets of tears. I really did. This uh, coming uh, Saturday, six days from today, in the very room that we're in right now, I have to do a funeral in here. You say, does somebody die who's missing? <laughs> no, thankfully nobody died. It's part of our Karis Bible College uh, curriculum where everybody has to do what we call sacerdotal duties. Ministers uh, do sacerdotal duties, and there's about nine different types of duties. You know, a minister should know how to teach. He should know how to lead worship, not necessarily sing, but be able to officiate worship if he needs to. Weddings, baptisms, funerals, baby dedications, communion service, there's, there's about nine different ones. And so I elected the funeral, to do a funeral. And at the time I elected to do the funeral, I didn't know whose funeral I'd do. <laughs> like, Lord, am I just going to make somebody up? And then I thought, you know, I could do one of my classmates. I honestly thought about that for a little while. I could do one of my classmates, but then we'd have to have a tenth sacerdotal duty, and that's raise my classmate from the dead. <laughs> I wouldn't want to leave my classmate dead. And as I meditated on it through the week, I heard the Lord say, why don't you do the funeral of the little boy that you lost? I thought, Wow. He was only 10 months old. Why don't you do his funeral? Because see, I was two months old in Jesus when that happened. It was 20 years ago now. I was two months old in the Lord. It would be a few months later before the calling on my life would come to preach. Why don't you do his funeral? His name's Taylor, Taylor Jacob. And I felt the Lord say, why don't you take Taylor's life, which was very brief, and why don't you combine it with the activity of one of your living sons and bring them together and do that? So this week I've had to sit down and I've had to write an obituary for the son that, of course, died a few, you know, quite a few years ago. Anyway, when I was thinking about that, as I was meditating on that, I heard the Lord say to me, this is the heart of my father. What the heart of my father does is he says, let me bridge together the son that I lost with the son that I have. See, it didn't make sense to me at first, but I thought, wow, Lord, that's precious. You see, God lost Adam in the garden. He didn't lose him in terms of not knowing where he placed him. He knew exactly where he was at. But he lost him to sin, didn't he? He lost him technically. And it would be several thousand years later that Jesus would come back with his blood and buy him back. Buy Adam back, buy us back. See, when Adam died and when Adam sinned, we were inside of Adam. Every DNA code, every race of people was inside Adam. It started with him, didn't it? So everybody was inside Adam. 
And so God was redeeming Adam back. He was redeeming us all back when Jesus came and died on the cross. So he bridged us together through righteousness, though, by faith. That's how it all came together. So the Apostle Paul was saying, For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, here's what he's going about to say, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. You've heard me talk about the Life Center. There were times that I would walk up and down that line trying to share Jesus with people, and people would just about spit in my face, and I, just, I would just love them. They wouldn't shake my hand. I mean, most people would. But if you took a hundred people out there, you'd always have one or two that wouldn't even shake your hand. They'd turn away from you and say, your light's too bright. Don't touch me. And the Apostle Paul is saying, listen, there are people who live as the enemy of the cross of Christ. Just get used to it. So what? You know, don't let it stop the message that you have in your heart. It just comes with the territory sometimes with, with, with sharing Jesus. He was basically saying, this breaks my heart. If you only understood that faith in Jesus is your bridge to righteousness, your struggles would cease. <laughs> they would just be over with. I read this several years ago. In 2002, there was a team of scientists from New Zealand that began working with a team of scientists from Japan. They had a project they wanted to work together on. Now, can you imagine, just think for a moment, six years, they got a breakthrough in 2008, they accomplished what they set out to do. Can you imagine what that payroll looked like for six years? I mean, scientists are paid well, and I'm thankful for scientists, believe me. Can you imagine what that payroll looked like, though? All those scientists making that big money, working on this special project. They probably got the most state-of-the-art building, all the laboratory cost. I mean, it would have been enormous, millions and millions, maybe a billion dollars. You say, Mark, did they, get a, did they find a cure for cancer? No. <laughs> did they find a cure for muscular dystrophy? No. Did they find a cure for cerebral palsy? No. You know what they found? They found and discovered a way this is amazing to me. How to make a tear-free onion. A tear-free onion. In other words, what they did is they used biotechnology, and what they were able to do is they were able to come in behind the enzymes that cause us to cry when you, know, when you start dicing an onion. Enzymes get up in the air and they start getting in your eyes and in your mucus and your membranes and that's what causes us to cry. What they were able to do is they were able to go behind those enzymes into the genetic code and just switch it off. Man. Let me tell you something. The enemy has been using the same tactic for many, many years. He switches off the driving force behind our tears, which is, see, tears are the, the effect. They, tear, you don't just cry for nothing. I don't people say, you know, I don't know why I'm crying. I'm just crying for nothing. No, there's something driving the tears. There's something, maybe you can't put a finger on it, but you, just, you really don't cry for nothing. There's something that's doing that. When I cry, it's because I'm caught up in worship. And I'm, I'm just caught up in the moment of love sometimes. Uh, many times it's because of compassion that will bring me to tears. So I got to thinking about this last night. And I thought about, Lord, how, how has the enemy been successful? How has he been able to? And there's many different ways, believe me. There's not just one. But one of the greatest ways that he has been able to shut off our tears is simply through the mixture message. I'm going to tell you why. See, you, you hear us talk about the mixture message from time to time, and that is what we say is we're trying to be new covenant believers by operating in old covenant principles, and it doesn't work good. You see, what happens is if we operate like that in the kingdom, it becomes such high maintenance, and all you have time to do is take care of yourself. You can't reach out to the people that you, you want to reach out to. You can't love the people you want to love because you're so busy taking care of yourself. You know, I learned to get self out of the way some time ago. Jesus taught me that. And you know how he taught me that? Through the message of righteousness, through the message of grace. 
You see, I don't have to wake up and go, man, i got to spend 14 hours with Daddy today and go, Daddy, are, are we tight still? <laughs> Daddy, are we okay with one another? <laughs> Daddy, uh, is there anything between us today? No, there's nothing between us. So I'm not spending all this time figuring out there's something between me and Daddy. Now I can just praise Him. Now I can let Him love on me. Now I can listen for His voice so that I can respond to whatever assignment He's got for me. I was thinking last night, I think it's Luke chapter 10, the story of the Good Samaritan. You've got a, a man, the Bible says, who's going down to Jericho. And on his way to Jericho, he's intercepted by some thieves. And the Bible says they beat him and they rob him and they leave him half dead. So can you picture this? This is a true story now. Can you imagine this? He's laying in the fetal position beside the road. He's moaning and groaning. He's been stripped. He's bleeding like crazy. And then the religious man of God, the priest, comes down, walking down the road. And he sees him. And the Bible says when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So it would be like he was right there, and he passed by on the other side. The Bible says so too a Levite, when he saw the man... Levite represents the assistant pastor, by the way. <laughs> the, the priest is the pastor, the Levite's the assistant pastor. As wherever the head goes, you know, the rest of the body will come with it, you know. And the Levite sees him too, and the Bible says he passed by on the other side too. Sometimes we're so busy maintaining our own emptiness, our own struggles, our own issues of life, and most of them are emotional, that we just go, I don't have time to take care of you because I'm, I'm trying to take care of me. But I'm going to tell you something. Believe me, this message, of, I know this because it's changed me. It's transformed me. I know me. I know the way I used to think. I know the way I used to spend my time. And it's changed me from the inside out. And it's changing you. You don't even realize it sometimes. But when this message of God's righteousness, that I'm always in good standing with Daddy, when it begins to really become into your pores of every, your core of everything you are, I'm going to tell you something. It's wonderful. You know what the enemy has done? He switched off our fight. And many, I'm going to name a couple things here for poverty. We see all this poverty worldwide, and we just go, there ain't nothing I can do about that. There is something we can do about that. When this message of God's righteousness begins to get in the hearts of men and women, and they're not spending 20 hours a week working on themselves, you'll have time to work in somebody else's heart and somebody else's life. Amen, you will. We've switched off the cry of the unborn. Do you know since Roe versus Wade, we've, we've actually murdered 57 million children, babies? What? 57 million, that's like 10 times the population of Chicago. 57 million. Now, do you think I have a, a plan, a strategy to stop that? I do, actually. Preach righteousness. Preach grace. Preach God's love. And I'm going to tell you something. You cannot fail when you preach like that. You cannot fail when you receive like that because it changes you and you affect someone else. You're the cause. There's the effect on it. Amen. God wants to teach us how to minister to the orphan and, and to the widow and to the stranger. I mean, that's the heartbeat of God. He said, give special attention to the orphans. And I can't elaborate on that too much because I don't have time, but to the orphans the widows, and the strangers. Whoa, the strangers? In 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, the Bible says these words, But whoever has the world's possessions and sees his fellow Christian in need and shuts off his compassion against him, how can the love of God reside in such a person? Yikes. The Lord blessed me again last night when I heard him say that the day is coming when Triumphant Grace Ministries is going to be bridged together with the Grace Center. Oh, that's the cry of my heart. That's just one ministry. That will happen. You mark it in your Bible. I'm going to tell you, that will happen. And they will come from the north, the south, the east, and the west to that place. They won't be coming just for the groceries. 
just for the, the clothes. But they'll be, well, that's what they'll probably be coming for. But I'm going to tell you something. They're going to be, when they get there, they're going to find there's so much more there. Because it's at that place that we'll put the robe on their shoulders. It's at that place we'll put the ring on their finger. It's at that place we'll put the shoes on their feet. It's at that place we'll take the roast out of the oven. It's at that place that you'll see hundreds and hundreds of people come to Jesus. It's not going to be a copycat of, of someone else. God will give us a very unique blueprint and strategy for that. You watch and see. Mark it in your heart. I read something that's staggering. They did a 15-year study on teenagers at school. And they said to them, if you were in an emergency situation, and you had to choose between the life of your dog or the life of a stranger, which one would you choose? The majority of our children said, I'd choose my dog to live. And they said, why? Why would you do that? And they responded with, I love my dog. I do not love the stranger. If you're going to operate at the Grace Center, you better get to learn to love the strangers because you see a lot of people one time. You get one opportunity to minister to those people. I remember years ago, it was probably 14 years ago, I actually preached a message called Loving the Stranger. Do you know where that word comes out of? That actually comes out of the word hospitality. The word hospitality is actually broken down. And the application, the true meaning of hospitality, being hospitable, is to love the stranger. It's to treat a person in a way as though you were looking for a place to spend the night. So that's an interesting thought, isn't it? You know what? If I needed a place to stay tonight, man, I would roll out the red carpet. Steve, I would just treat you so good, thinking maybe you're going to take me in and let me stay at your house tonight. That's hospitality for you. That's what it means. Loving the stranger. I believe we'll have a television ministry. I believe we'll have a radio ministry. And I'm looking into the Christian radio channels in this area to get us on radio in this area. Amen. A way to broadcast faith in Jesus. He's the bridge to righteousness. That's the cry of my heart. On Easter morning, Steve's mom and dad lost their entire home in a fire, and they lost everything in it. They got out with the clothes on their back and just a couple of little things, but probably 90 to 95% of everything was lost, wasn't it, Steve? And uh, Steve found out about it, I think, on Monday or, or Sunday night, or it was. You let me know on Monday. And I said to him, call them up and ask them, what is their greatest need? He called them up and they came back with, well, we're doing fine so far. The Red Cross had been there, and I'm thankful for the Red Cross, to put them up in a hotel for two or three nights, pay for that, give them a little bit of money to buy things. But when you've lost everything and you're living in a hotel, it's expensive. Now you've got to go out and buy clothes. I mean, all the little stuff, shaving, you know, toothbrush. I mean, just everything you've got to buy. You're eating all your meals on the road now. Very, very expensive. And by Wednesday, the Holy Spirit was saying, they have a need, meet it. And that is the, the heartbeat of Triumphant Grace Ministry. See a need, fill it, find a hurt and heal it. It's like Tommy Barnett. And so I called Steve up on Wednesday morning and I said, can you meet me on my way to work? I want to give them a check, you know, to be able to stay in the hotel because they didn't know what was happening at that point in time. And what I did is I took from Triumphant Grace Ministries, this isn't Mark, this was Triumphant Grace Ministries, and I wrote them a check simply for $1,000. Now that seems like a lot of money, but when you've lost everything, that's nothing. They were very grateful. I mean, Steve called me back a half an hour later and just said, man, my mom, you, you made her cry, and she's very blessed, and they're, they're both, they were both very blessed. Friday, two days later, they received a check from the United States government, a check they've been waiting on for many, many years. I don't want to get into their business to say how much it was, but it was a very large sum. On Sunday morning, his mother drove over to his house and said, take my tithe check to Triumph at Grace Ministries. And friends, I'm going to tell you something. The gift, should I say, that we received from them was many times over what we had given to them. Many times over. The Bible says, given it shall be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. We didn't do it for that reason, but I'm going to tell you something. God is faithful. And so as we give, and we give different ways, we're giving, we're sowing into people's lives this message of grace and this message of righteousness. I'm going to tell you something. There's going to be a harvest, and you're going to be part of it. You're going to be out there with your sickles too. Yep, just like me, scooping up the harvest. Oh, it's going to be glorious. It really is. Steve touched on this one time, and... I feel kind of awkward touching on it, but I just want to do it for a reason. I remember early in our ministry, you said something about it one time when you were receiving the offering. My wife and I received $50 a month to pastor this church. 
That's all. And we didn't even want to take that. The only reason we took that is because the people who set us up financially and structured this ministry said, you know what? If you don't take something monthly, you're going to be considered a volunteer. In other words, you won't have any advantage for all the mileage. We put on about 10,000 miles a year just commuting. But if you're an employee of the church, no matter what amount, then you can at least claim your mileage. You can claim the room in your house that you call your study, all that. And you know, that's all legal. Otherwise, I wouldn't do it. So I said, okay. And I remember when we had our first board meeting there and I presented that, there were a lot of the board members that had a problem with it. They're like, no, we want to give you more. I'm like, no, I don't want any more. You see, the reason I didn't is because I didn't want to bleed the church dry. And if I, I want to take the finances coming into this church and I want to use them to propagate the message. I don't want them to use them to support Mark. Now that might change down the road when we become full-time ministers, so you remember that, okay? Full-time and we move this direction. That might change. God has a way of changing things up. But we take the precious dollars that are sown into this ministry and we use them back out there to propagate the message of the gospel. I usually preach for an hour when I preach. From the time I start to the time I end, across that timeline, 6,000 people will have died in this world. I hear the second clock in the back of the room. With every beat of that clock, people are dying. 144,000 people die every single day in the world. Many of them enter in eternity without Jesus. They never walked across the bridge to righteousness. It was there. All they had to do was put their faith in Jesus, and it would have been all over for them. Jesus would have taken them in. So when we look at this scripture, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've also gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. That word faith comes up twice. I want to ask you a question. Do you think that word faith is a noun or a verb? <laughs> it's a noun, buddy. It's a noun. It's a noun. It's not just an action of something I've done. It's a noun. It's a, per it's a substance is what it is. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, now faith is the substance. It's a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I love it when I think about faith. It's something, you know, I'm being a little facetious here, but it just feels like something I can reach out and grab. I've got it. And if, I'll tell you what, if we didn't have faith, if we weren't operating by faith, we weren't operating by grace, we'd just go home. It wouldn't be worth it for us. I'm not here to manipulate. I'm not here to do anything but just take God's Word and preach it with faith. This word faith comes from the Greek word pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S. It means reliance upon Christ for salvation. That word faith, it's reliance upon Christ for salvation. And when I was thinking about this word the other day, I said, Lord, where does it come up for the first time in the New Testament? I want to see where this word comes up for the first time. And it comes up in the story of the centurion in Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 5. Interesting, that's where it comes up for the first time. Here's how it begins. And when Jesus was entered into, we call it Capernaum, it's actually pronounced Capernaum. When Jesus had entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy. You know, like in cerebral palsy. He lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said to him, he didn't say, I'm going to go with you. He said, I'm going to come with you. And I thought, why is that word so important? And I looked in the, in the Bible. Do you know the word go comes up 238 times, but the word come comes up 556 times? I thought almost two and a half times it comes up in the Bible. And I thought about when Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, when he said, come unto me. See, there's that word, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What was he saying? Are you tired? Are you, are you full of labor? You, you need some, come unto me, is what he was saying. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will hear my voice and will open the door. Watch what he says. I will come in. I'm going to come in. And what am I going to do when I'm in there? This is a strange scripture. I'm going to come in and I'm going to have supper with you. I'm going to come in and dine with you. I'm going to come in and eat with you. So what he's saying in just those two scriptures, are you tired? Let me come into your life. Are you hungry? Let me come into your life. Let me be more than you, I already am in your life. 
And you know what? I'm going to tell you something. I used to be much more tired and much more hungry than I am now. But he, his nourishing grace and his nourishing love and this nourishing goodness and his nourishing righteousness, that's exactly what it's doing. It's nourishing my body. It's nourishing my mind. So I'm energized. I'm energized. He says, come when you're tired. Come when you're hungry. Several years ago when my boys were very young, I was taking them to school. We had been out of town. I was driving them back into town one day to take them to school. One went to a, a middle school. One went to an elementary school. There were two different schools. I had it all programmed in my mind exactly which one I was going to drop off first, exactly what streets I was going to go down before I got to town. And as I drove into, the, into Freeport, Illinois that day, down the street, they were hustling and bustling with cars up and down the street. There were people walking up and down the sidewalks. And as I was driving, I saw a man over on my left-hand side walking toward the corner, and I heard the Holy Spirit say to me, feed him, he's hungry. What do you do with something like that? You go, no, that ain't God. God, that can't be you. I'm, you, you see, i got to drop my boys off. I ain't got time to pick up no strangers. Feed him, he's hungry. And I dismissed it. I'm just thinking, that that just got to be me for some reason. That's just weird. So I went and dropped my one son off, and then I went and dropped, and I didn't think about it anymore. I dropped my other son off, and I heard the Holy Spirit. The second I, he closed the door and said, bye, Dad, love you, and closed the door, the Holy Spirit said, what about that hungry man? By that time, I just said, okay, Lord, I'll, I'll go feed him. And here's what I said to the Lord. I said, Lord, if that really is you, you know the way I'm leaving this town. It's a different way than when I came in, isn't it? It's not the same street. You know the way I go out of this town. I said, if that's really you, put him on the street I'm leaving on. And the Lord said, you search diligently for him. And I just said, yes, sir. And I had conceded in my heart, I will search until I find that man. I knew exactly what he looked like. Here's the goodness of God. When I made up my mind to do what God said... He took that man who had been a few blocks away and put him on the very street I was leaving on. And when I saw him about a block and a half, two blocks up the road, I saw him and I just, what do you do? I do these kind of numbers in my car. Oh, really, God? Really? And I just had this flush come over me. I'm like, oh, Lord, it will be exciting to see what you're up to. It's going to be exciting. And so I went past him. I pulled over and parked. I got out of my car. And I walked up to him on the sidewalk, right in front of him. And he stopped and I stopped. And I said to him, good morning, sir. Well, actually what I said to him was, I said, good morning, sir. How you doing today? That's the way I said it. Good morning. How you doing today? Most people would say, oh, I'm doing fine, or I'm not doing so fine, or it's none of your business, or whatever, something. But the man looked at me and said, I'm tired and I'm hungry. And I looked at him and I said, I know. I know. I come by to feed you today. We went over and got in my vehicle. There was a restaurant about a block down the road, and I drove him down to that restaurant. He ordered coffee. I ordered something to drink. He said, i got to go use the restroom. And while he was gone, I said, God, what is this about? This has got to be bigger than breakfast. See, that's the way we got to always think. It's got to be bigger than what we can see. The Grace Center is bigger than we can see. Triumphant Grace Ministries is bigger than we can ever see. And so while he was using the restroom, I just was praying when he came back and he sat down, see, I'm, I'm an evangelist. <laughs> I, I'm an evangelist. I asked my wife on the way here, I said, am I more of an evangelist or more of a pastor? And she, of course, with her wisdom, she said, you're both. <laughs> I'm an evangelist at heart. And so I said, Lord, help me here in this situation. When he sat down across from me, I learned that his name was David. Of course, I hadn't did word studies back then. I had no idea what David meant. I know now today it means beloved. God sent his beloved to me. His name was David. Interestingly enough, I thought about his last name was Wright. <laughs> you kidding me? We're talking about righteousness. His last name's Wright. David Wright, my beloved's Wright. If we're not careful, what we'll try to do is get religious. And I thought, I've got to take him through the Romans road. You know what I mean? Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. <laughs> got that? <laughs> Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, brother. <laughs> oh, you got that? I got your feet dangling over hell with a spider web? Mm-hmm. No, okay, you got it. All right, you know, and then Romans 10.9, if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart, we should, you know, I thought this is what I was going to have to do. When, I, when he sat down, I said, I learned his name, David. I said, David, I want to talk to you about Jesus. You know what he said to me? He said, I want him. I want him. Give him to me. I want him. I went, what? 
You know, I thought about this last night. I thought, man, if I just had the ability to be able to show you on that screen how that happened, you'd all be stunned. I was stunned. I'm like, really? The guy was begging me to get Jesus in his heart. I reached across the table and grabbed him by the hands and led him to Jesus in that restaurant. You see, what God was showing me even back then, it's faith in Jesus. It's faith in Him alone. He becomes the bridge to righteousness. And when it's done, it's done. There was more to the story, but that's all I've got time to tell. But where did I get that from? You know, Jesus said, are you tired? Come to me. Are you hungry? Let me in. This man was both tired and hungry. And he came to Jesus that day. Oh, happy day. In Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 through 3, I'm still on this word, come, C-O-M-E, come. Oh, I love these scriptures. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 through 3. I'm reading from the Message Bible. The Message Bible is not a translation, it's a paraphrase, okay? But it breaks it down into such simple English, we can't miss it. Watch what he says and how often he uses this word, come. He starts off with a, hey there, with an exclamation point. So you can see he's shouting this. He said, hey there, all who are thirsty, come to the water. Now who's the water? You know it's Jesus. Jesus told that woman at the well in John chapter 4, he said, if you drink that water, you're going to be thirsty again. But if you drink this water, (laughs) you're never going to thirst again. He is the water. He said, hey there, all you that are thirsty, come to the water. He says, are you penniless? In other words, are you broke? (laughs) He says, come anyway. Are you broke? Come anyway. And then he uses this really strange word, buy. Wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. You just said, are you broke? And now you want me to buy something? He didn't say beg. He didn't say borrow. He didn't say steal. He said, buy. Buy what? He said, buy and eat. See, I've heard Joseph Prince say this. When you use the word go, it's more like a demand. When you use the word come, it's more like a supply. And that's what grace does. Grace is always there to supply. And so when he's saying come and buy and eat, even if you're broke, broke, he's basically saying, I'm going to be your supply. He says, come, buy your drinks, buy wine and milk, buy without money, everything's free. (laughs) That's poetry, isn't it? Buy without money, everything's free? Let me tell you something about grace. It's a free gift, but it cost him everything. It cost Jesus everything. Oh, it's free to us, but it cost the darling of heaven his life and his shed blood. I was in my study here, uh, oh, about two weeks ago, and I heard my wife out in the other room go, what? And I'm like, I come run out there. What's going on, baby? You're not going to believe what that minister just said on television. And DVR, she rewound it. And if I told you this minister's name, everybody in this room would recognize that name. Very well-known minister. I won't do that. And what he said was this, basically. These people are talking about grace. He said, I want you to know, as his head was bobbing, I want you to know something. I earned my anointing. I said, no, turn him off! You didn't earn nothing! These scriptures are saying, come and buy with nothing! Listen, God's goodness didn't come to you for nothing that you had to pay for it. God's grace didn't come where you had to pay for it. God's nothing came to you that you had to pay for it. And when he said, I've earned my anointing, I, I, I want to I'll be honest with you, put a six spot in my stomach. No, no, that goes against everything I'm learning and everything I know to be true. I know you're, you're a much smarter man than I am, but I'll tell you what, that's one place I've got a deeper revelation than what you've got, sir, because you, that's <laughs> not true. He asked this question in the same verses. Why do you spend your money on junk food? You know what? That's what the old covenant is, is junk food. And there's people that still want to eat it. Why do you spend your money on junk food? You know what? Here's the deal about junk food. It might taste good, I agree. But it's depleted of nutrition. It's depleted of life. He says, why do you spend your money on junk food, your hard-earned cash on cotton candy? I told Janet I was going to mention cotton candy tomorrow when she was sitting there eating cotton candy in front of me at the restaurant we were at yesterday. Why do you spend your hard-earned money on cotton candy? You know, cotton candy really has no substance. It kind of, here's what it does. It projects something that it's not. Look how big and fluffy I am. I'll just fill you right up, big old ball of it like that. Gone. That's all it does. 
Why do you spend your hard-earned money on cotton candy? Listen to me. Listen well. He says, eat only the best. I'm going to tell you what the best is. It's grace. It's righteousness. That's, that's the food we're supposed to be eating. Eating the best. Don't gobble down everything someone throws at you. Amen? He says, fill yourself only with the finest. Pay attention. Come close now. There that word is again. Listen carefully to my life-giving, life-nourishing words. Here's what he says. I'm making a lasting covenant commitment with you, the same that I made with David. It's sure. It's solid. It's an enduring love. Friends, in those three scriptures right there is hid the gospel. You say, where's the gospel at? Come to Jesus. Are you broke? Come anyway. <laughs> Do you have sin in your life? Come anyway. You can buy without money. You can buy. You can, you can take advantage of everything in the kingdom of God, everything I supply. Quit eating that junk food. Quit eating that sin. Quit eating that old covenant. Quit eating that stuff. It's the gospel hid right there. We go back to that when it's first mentioned in Romans. I know that was a rabbit trail. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion, beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. That is the heartbeat of grace, by the way. Centurion. Did you hear that word centurion? The root word of centurion is century, which means 100 years. A centurion was a Roman officer who had 100 soldiers underneath him. He was responsible for 100 men. When I thought about this, and I won't get off in too much of a rabbit trail, but when I thought about this here, when you see the number 100 in the Bible, it is very significant. It means fullness. Abraham, the Bible says, was 100. Abraham's a picture. He's a type and shadow of God. His son Isaac is a type and shadow of Christ. The Bible says that Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. That's fullness of measure, measure of time. It's the fullness of measure. That's what the Lord said to me. It's the fullness of measure. We see this parable of the sower where you go out and you sow seed. Some falls on the path and the stones and, you know, the, the, the weeds and some in the, on the, in the good soil. And the Bible says the stuff that fell in good soil, the seed that fell in good soil, it, the Bible says it, it came to life and there was a harvest. And it says some produced 30, 60, and some 100 fold. There's that number 100 again. It speaks of the fullness of return, the fullness of treasure. And then we see it again when, when the guy's got 100 sheep. He's got 100 sheep. He loses one and then the Bible says he leaves the 99 and he goes and searches for that sheep until he finds it. He puts the sheep on his shoulder and he comes home. And rejoicing, the Bible says. And he throws this big party telling his friends and his neighbors, my lost sheep, he was, he was lost, but now he's found. Come and celebrate with me. You see, most people would say, well, you know what? I still got 99 left. I still have 99 left. You know, what's the big deal about the one? Because it's not fullness. It's not fullness. And God won't settle for anything less than fullness. And that gives me great hope. I, get, I have a crazy day, a bad day, and I decide to wander off in someone else's pasture. My Jesus is coming to look for me and get me. He's a good shepherd. So it's fullness of measure, fullness of treasure, and fullness of pleasure. I had to ask this question, what motivated the centurion to come to Jesus? It doesn't say. Was he looking for another soldier for his army? How ridiculous. Again, I've said this before. Quit thinking that God is looking for more soldiers in his army. He's got angels for his army. He's looking for sons in his family. Not for soldiers in the army. I'm going to tell you what I believe drove that centurion to Jesus. It was compassion. It was mercy. And it was love for that servant. I believe that was his motivation. He had nothing to gain from that. The servant had palsy. Let me tell you something about palsy. It affects a person's posture. It affects a person's balance. It affects their ability to move, their ability to communicate, their ability to eat, sleep, and learn. That's why it's so important for us to get this message, this identity message of sonship. Because if we keep seeing ourselves as a servant, guess what it's going to do? It's going to affect our posture, our balance, 
our ability to move, our ability to communicate, our ability to eat God's Word, our ability to sleep, and that means rest, and our ability to learn. It's old covenant thinking. Our identity is no longer in servanthood. Our identity is in Christ. This paralysis affected this man's walk and this man's talk. In closing, here's what I want to say. I read this amazing article. When a woman was four years old, she was diagnosed with cerebral palsy. She was seeing one of the finest pediatric neurologists in the world. And he said, you know what? We do tests on you. We can't really quite document it with tests, but there's no, no doubt about it. You're a classic case of cerebral palsy. And all of her life, if you've ever known anybody with cerebral palsy, I'm going to tell you, it affects them bad, doesn't it? It does. I have compassion for people like that. And it affected her walk. It affected her talk. It affected her muscles. It affected her ability to learn all these things. For 29 years, she dealt with cerebral palsy. And then last year, she had had a pump put in her. I don't know if it was for pain or what it was for, but she had this pump that was implanted into her. And something happened where the pump started leaking, so she had to go see a doctor. Not the same doctor, but another doctor to take care of this problem. And when the doctor looked at her, she said to her, I don't think you have cerebral palsy. Oh, she said, no, I've got cerebral palsy. Believe me, I've had it for 29 years. I know cerebral palsy. I've got cerebral palsy. She said, I really don't think that's what it is. I think it's another one, and it's got three names to it. She said, you know what? I'm going to prescribe for you this one little pill. And she said, if you'll take this pill, probably 95% of your symptoms will be gone. She, she looked at her and said, no, that's, that's impossible. That can't be. She took the prescription. She wasn't even going to fill that prescription. Her husband said, honey, what have we got to lose? She took her first little pill. Three hours later, when her husband went over to get her up off the couch, which was the custom, she just stood up all by herself. And she said, I honestly feel in my body like I'm getting stronger. Within a day or so, she was walking absolutely normal off a medication called L-DOPA. She was walking absolutely normal. It's amazing. She would not let people film her because she was too embarrassed about the way she walked. But she said, you know what? Unless I wean myself back off of this medication, the whole world is not going to believe this. So she weaned herself off the medication. You go look on Yahoo, it's there. And she took a five-minute video clip of day by day by day by day by day. Okay, today's the first day I didn't take my pill. She looked as normal as, as I do walking. The second day, you could see it started to bend her a little bit. By about the fifth or sixth day, she was just as crippled as she was before when they said she had cerebral palsy. Around the seventh day, she said, I was in such pain, I had to take, start taking that medication. But you couldn't tell the difference between her and anybody else. Here's what I felt the Lord say to me. Here was her issue in life for 29 years. And here's the amazing thing. She wasn't bitter. She's a churchgoer. Knows somebody that knows Jesus. But here's what I heard the Lord say to me. Her problem was that she had been misdiagnosed. And I heard the Lord say to, to me, that's the same problem with the body of Christ. They've been misdiagnosed. See, I'm trying to tell them they're righteous. But they're wanting to believe the enemy. When he says, listen, you'll never amount to anything. When the Bible says, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. See, the enemy keeps speaking in our ears and misdiagnosing us. That's why it's so important for us to get this message of his grace and his love and his righteousness. Do you get it? Do you see it? Oh, here we go. We're closing. <laughs> oh, man. She was misdiagnosed. The same way the prodigal son misdiagnosed himself when he had blown it. See, when he had did good, the father wanted to celebrate his son. But when he had did bad, the father wanted to celebrate his son. But all the way home, he's rehearsing, I'm going to go home, and I'm just going to be a servant. But the father met him with hugs and kisses and a robe and a ring and shoes and the roast in the oven. That's the way the father met him. He didn't see him as a servant. He saw him as a son. You see, he tried to misdiagnose himself. The enemy will put that stuff in your mind. 
The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and this one, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth. I have not found anyone in Israel, here's this word coming up, with such great faith. That's that word pistis. I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. And I thought, what did the centurion do? He didn't do anything. He didn't get his wallet out. He didn't say any prayers. He did nothing. He just simply put his faith in Jesus, the bridge to righteousness. Amen. Father, we just thank you for your great grace. I have stood and I preached your word exactly the way you gave it to me. I know we went deep when we went long, but we took simple ways to make it so plain. Father, I just thank you that righteousness has been engrafted into our hearts. And Father, because of that, we should be responding to our new identity, saying what the Bible says about us, saying about your, what your word says about us, Lord Jesus. We need to respond with righteous thinking. Father, never, ever again, never again, well, I believe the enemy when he tries to misdiagnose me because I know what my daddy says. I'm not settling for the counterfeit. I'm going for the genuine. Father, in Jesus' name, I speak great grace, such grace over your people. In Jesus' name, amen.